Well, our speaker today is the best Old Testament professor Prairie has to offer. <laughs> hey? And uh, I think she read a little part of the New Testament so that she could be able to speak today. Yeah? Okay? Good? All right. Well, we're on a roll. Uh, anyway, you've had uh, probably had Carmen uh, for a class and enjoyed her teaching, and so uh, we look forward to her speaking uh, with us today. So as she comes, let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are grateful that we can come to you, the source of our help, when we are such a needy people. We come before a God who is worthy to receive praise and adoration and glory. You are worthy to receive the dedication of our lives. You are worthy to receive the work of our hands, of our voices, of our minds. You are worthy of all. And so we come before you and say, we need your help today. Not just as we finish this term, but even today. For expectations that we have that have not been met. For things that we have prayed about that have not been answered yet, we come before you, the God who is worthy, the God who provides help to those who are in need, the God who listens to the cries of his people. And so we thank you that you are this God. And as we listen to your word today, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and minds to hear what you would have to say to us. Be with Carmen. Give her the words to say to us. And we thank you that we have your word. Would you bless it? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. I do read the New Testament now and then. It's great devotional material. Before we get started in the book of Acts, uh, I have a piece of great news for most of you. So raise your hand if you were wishing you could go on the Israel trip, but you just maybe wanted to sign up but just couldn't swing it financially. Well, we've made a decision over the past few days to postpone the trip one year because we want more of you to be able to join us. So this gives you like 17 months or something, maybe longer, to save your pennies so that you can join us on the trip. So I hope that you will take that seriously. We'd love to see lots more students sign up. We only had two signed up, which is why we decided to uh, postpone it. We had others, uh, staff and family members of mine and uh, friends in the community who wanted to join us, but we felt like we want more than two students to go on the trip. So we'd love to have you join us. All right, so today we get to talk about the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 6 and 7. So this is the story of Stephen, and the passage nicely breaks up into four chunks, and I did not have to work very hard to make them alliterate. So first we have seven selected, then Stephen seized, then Stephen's sermon, and then Stephen's stoning. If you look at the little headings in your Bible, there are almost that many S's. And in each stage of this story, as it un unfolds, you'll find 
that we, have, we hear something about the work of the Spirit. And so since our series is talking about what the Spirit does, what His role is in our lives as believers, um, that's what we're going to be tracking through the passage. Today's topic is the wisdom of the Spirit, and we're going to see wisdom in Stephen's life. So, so first, as the seven are selected, that we see that they're selected, um, they're, they're selected because they're full of the Spirit. It doesn't take long in the beginning of the, of the church for there to be problems. And so the beginning of our story is actually a problem. The church is running up against a conflict. There are lots of widows, and the church is caring for these widows. And it, it turns out that probably about a third of women during that time period would have been widowed, just for various reasons. About 40% of those between the ages of 40 and 50 were, were widows. So we're talking about a large number of widows who are very vulnerable. Um, in our day and age, there's lots of um, protections in place. There's um, social security and other ways of caring for people who have lost, caring for women who've lost their husband, who don't have children to care for them. Um, but in this time period, there were fewer protections in place. And those that were, were connected with the synagogue. So if you're a, a new believer in Jesus from a Jewish background, and you, because you follow Jesus, maybe your family has rejected you, and you're no longer part of the synagogue, then who's going to take care of you? So the early church figured out pretty early on that they needed to care for widows, and, um, and yet there was a problem. There were kind of two groups of widows in the early church. There were the, um, those who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, and there were those who spoke Greek. And so there's a cultural divide that comes down right down the center of the church because it turns out that those who speak Hebrew or Aramaic get more of the attention and those who speak Greek are feeling a bit left out. And so the church faces this problem. In these four sections of Acts 6 and 7, we're going to see multiple problems that the early church faces. Not only is there cultural conflict, there's religious conflict, and we even, like our hero in the story, is going to be dead by the end of chapter 7. And so as we take a step back and think about the Spirit's work in this passage, one thing is really obvious. The Spirit does not prevent problems, but He does empower us to respond wisely under pressure. So we're going to see that the church is going to have lots of problems in these two chapters. That does not mean the Spirit is not at work. It means uh, the Spirit is at work, actually. It's provoked by the Spirit's work, the growth of the church and opposition to that growth. Um, but, but in the midst of those problems, God gives wisdom through His Spirit to His people so that they can respond wisely. So we have two major problems that come up. The first is this cultural conflict. So look at chapter 6 in the first couple of paragraphs. It tells us that the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Most of us, I think, when we're, when we're considering the work that needs to be done in the world, 
in our minds, there may be a connection between the empowerment of the Spirit and, say, preaching or teaching ministry, or, say, gifts of healing and miracles. We are less likely to associate the gift of administration with the, with the Holy Spirit's empowerment, but that's exactly what we see in this passage. We need some guys who will hand out food to, our, to the widows evenly. We, let's make sure these guys are full of the Spirit. Let's make sure that they have a track record of responding to the Spirit. And not just that, uh, we can see from the list of names of the seven they chose that they chose seven Greek men who are filled with the Spirit, which is really interesting. They're, they appoint members of the offended minority to carry out the work. So in verse 5, we hear this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of the faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Cool stuff happening in the early church, but growth is not without its problems. And so this first problem they face, and they ask, uh, they asked people to choose from among them people who were full of the Spirit. Imagine with me for a moment that something happened suddenly. Let's say all the impact leaders were in a meeting with the DSDs when suddenly they were taken hostage. And we don't know where they've been taken, but they're not on campus anymore. And let's say we don't know how long it will be till they come back. And so then our task is to choose from among us new impact leaders on the spot, New impact leaders who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Who among us would qualify for that role? Who is somebody that you've noticed, here's somebody full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. That's the kind of selection process that the early church was going through. They needed more leaders, and so they didn't look for people with no track record. They looked for people with a track record. We don't know anything about Stephen before this scene. We, we've never met him before, but we, we hear from, from those who chose that here's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Is that how we're known? Is that how somebody would describe you? Here's somebody full of, the faith, full of faith and of the Spirit. Verse 8 launches us into the next section, Stephen seized. Um, Stephen, it tells us again, is a man full of God's grace and power. And notice that he does not stay inside the box that he was put in. Uh, it's interesting to me. He was selected so that he could distribute food. But what we first see him doing is performing great wonders and signs among the people. So when you select somebody who's full of the Spirit and of wisdom, they respond flexibly to different ministry situations. I think we can, we can learn several things from this. One, some of us have spent our entire lives watching other people do the ministry, the work of the ministry. We've sat back while other people volunteered to teach Sunday school, while other people volunteered to set up for an event or to take down for an, after an event. Um, other people who offered to lead the Bible study. Other people offered to drive the bus. And I think this story reminds us of the importance of everybody being part of the work. 
these, the apostles could no longer carry out the ministry on their own. They needed help, and so they appoint these others who are full of the Spirit. The other thing I wonder is whether some of us, because there are those who don't step up to the plate and let other people do the work, then there are those of us who say yes to everything and try to do it all and don't, don't um, spread the work out. Are we, by cramming so much ministry in our schedule, are we actually denying others the opportunity to serve using the gifts that the Spirit have given, has given them? So we could maybe ask ourselves the question, why do I need to be the one to do this? And has God equipped someone else for the task? So these are lessons we can see from watching the church's response to this first problem of ethnic conflict. But the second problem comes when Stephen breaks outside his box, he's performing wonders and signs among the people, and it says in verse 9 that opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So he starts to come in conflict with Jewish Jewish leaders in his area, and the Spirit speaks through him again. So this is why we need to choose for ministry people who are full of the Spirit, so that they're ready when opposition arises, because the Spirit does not prevent problems, but he empowers us to respond wisely under pressure. I love watching Stephen's response to the accusations that are thrown at him. We're going to see um, three different sets of accusations thrown at him, but they all, they're a repetition of the same thing. So verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So this is what he's being charged with, blaspheming Moses, how dare he, and blaspheming God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, which is another way of saying he blasphemes Moses, the law, and God in his holy temple. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So there's the third pair of accusations, destroying the temple and changing the customs Moses handed down to us. So there's Stephen, False witnesses have been brought forward. These are the two charges against him. He's blasphemed Moses and he's blasphemed God. And his response is striking. He does not defend himself. He does not say, I never said that. That's not true. You guys are making this up. He steps into this situation where he's been falsely accused and he uses it as an opportunity to speak by the power of the Spirit into a toxic religious situation. What if our calculated efforts to defend ourselves became spirit-empowered opportunities to deliver God's wisdom? He's not interested in self-defense or self-protection, and sure enough, by the end of the chapter, he'll be dead. What if our prayers for protection became prayers for God's name to be glorified. We're quite concerned with safe travel and with, with happy family time and with protection from all sorts of ills. Um, 
good health, but what if our prayers revolved around the name of God, the reputation of God, and his glory among the nations? Stephen seizes this opportunity to speak to them. The high priest asked Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, and then he launches into a long sermon. And probably the reason why I ended up with this chapel message is because his whole sermon is a recap of the Old Testament. I love it when, the new, when I read the New Testament and they're talking about the Old Testament, which is a lot of time of the time. So, so they've given him two accusations. If you go through this chapter, chapter 7, so let's say you're doing a narrative analysis of this chapter, and you pick one color to be Moses and the other color to be the holy place or the temple, and you follow through, you can see that as he's, he's not just retelling Bible stories he heard as a kid. He's shaping Israel's story to respond to these two specific accusations, not to defend himself, but to undermine their very argument. And it's super brilliant. This is, I think, the wisdom of the Spirit on display. So they've made two accusations. Stephen spoke against the holy place. Stephen spoke against Moses' law. Listen to this. Brothers and sisters, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. This is our first clue that, that Stephen is driving in a, an interesting direction. He's going to highlight over and over how God reveals himself outside the land, how he reveals himself to people who are not in the temple. So rather than saying, I didn't say that about the temple, he's going to go ahead and relativize the temple and show God has been working for ages outside the land and outside the, the temple. You people do not have a monopoly on the presence of God. So, so the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. But check this out. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess this land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. So he's acknowledging that this is the designated place of worship. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. This is our other colored pencil. We're talking about the law of Moses now, and he's making a subtle point. The law came long before Moses. Abraham is the one who has the covenant of circumcision. It goes back further. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And as he goes on, um, he's going to keep bringing up these themes. So let's just um, skip, hop, skip, and a jump through his sermon, and I'll show you what I have highlighted according to these two themes. So verse 15 is on the theme of the holy place. Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. 
So he's um, kind of subtly dismissing the importance of the land just by saying they were only dead when they got here. Like they didn't even enjoy living in the land and in the inheritance. It was their dead bodies that were brought here. Um, flip, skipping down to verse 29, Moses flees to Midian where he settled at a foreigner as a foreigner and had two sons. So now we're highlighting again Moses' life outside the land. Then, then verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai, far, far, far away from the holy place of the temple. And God appears to him there and says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Again, outside the land, outside the temple, here's God at work. And then he sends him back to Egypt. Skipping down to verse 38, he was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our ancestors he received living words to pass on to us outside the land. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. And then verse 45, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. It remained in the land until the time of David. Verse 47 is as close as we get to the temple. It was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. So again, relativizing the significance of this building that Solomon has made. And then he quotes, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So he's made a calculated effort throughout his sermon to say, you think that building is so special. God is way bigger than your religious system. All right, so back to the beginning of the sermon. Now we're going to go through and see um, how he responds to this charge that he's blaspheming Moses and the law. So he, he takes time to highlight how great Moses is. Verse 20. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt's, of the Egyptians, and was powerful in speech and action. So we're, he's exalting Moses. Verse 25, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And this is where the, his response to their charges about the law and about Moses get kind of transformed, and he begins poking a finger at them. He begins highlighting something about Israel's history that is a little bit less comfortable. So, and, and he's already done a bit of this back by talking about Joseph in verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Joseph, sorry, so Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. So the patriarchs, it's interesting, he calls them the patriarchs. Joseph's brothers are the patriarchs. They reject Joseph 
as ruler. They're jealous of him, and they sell, sell him as a slave, but God appoints him ruler over all Egypt. Similar with Moses, when he, when he visits his own people, he thought that they would recognize God sent him as a savior, but they did not. The next day, verse 26, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Ha ha. Such an ironic moment for, the, for us as readers and for Stephen's listeners. He's highlighting how Israel, the Israelites rejected Moses all along the way. This is not a new idea to reject Moses. Actually, they're the ones who've rejected Moses. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Now look at verse 35. We get a, another go at this same accusation. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness, all outside the land and all in front of people who were rejecting them, rejecting his leadership. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Who might that be? The prophet like Moses. Scholars um, have often said, well, that's Jesus. It's looking ahead to Jesus. And I think it is in part, um, but I don't think Moses is just thinking of Jesus here. Because in the context of Deuteronomy 18, where it says, um, where Moses talks about God raising up a prophet like him, it's a context of, here's how the nations figure out what God wants. They practice divination and sorcery and witchcraft. You're not to do any of these things. I will raise up a prophet who will speak on my behalf. So it's not just Jesus, but it's all through Israel's history. God's been raising up prophets to speak his word to the people. That's how they're supposed to know what to do. Not by witchcraft and sorcery, but by listening to and obeying his word. So we have a long history in Israel of rejection of God's deliverer. Verse 39, our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Then it talks about the golden calf episode. And then the part we've already read. So we get down to verse 51, and it's as if Stephen's run out of patience. He's, he's been telling this story and telling this story um, to, to specifically target these two accusations. He's, you've spoken against the holy place and against Moses' law. Finally, he can't contain himself anymore. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. So be, being stiff-necked makes them just like the golden calf, whose neck is stiff. It can't turn to the right or the left. They've become like what they worshipped. Their hearts and ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Doesn't even say the name of Jesus, but everybody knows who he's talking about. You who have received the law that was given through angels but has, have not obeyed it. 
So they don't really like his sermon very well. I'm not sure why. Seems like a great sermon to me, inspirational. Um, They accuse him of undermining Moses' law and of working against the law, but his response is, you've rejected all the prophets and you've disobeyed the law. So he throws it back in their face. Ajith Fernando is a a commentator on the book of Acts, and he says, we must not forget that the Spirit's fullness is also given to to prepare us for suffering. We must develop a theology of the fullness of the Spirit in the darkness. We think of Spirit filling maybe too often as exuberance or ecstatic utterances or everything's going really well, the Spirit's really at work. But in these two chapters, we come face to face with some tricky stuff, some big problems that the church is facing, and the Spirit is in it. The Spirit is using it. The Spirit is speaking through people in response to it. How can we position ourselves to respond to opposition like this with wisdom and to face trials with faith? How can we become men and women who step up rather than shrink back? When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him, naturally. But Stephen, and here we hear it again, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The implicit critique of of them against Stephen is that he follows Jesus this false prophet, and look at these ways he's undermining Judaism. So Peter hasn't, uh, sorry, Stephen hasn't mentioned Jesus in his sermon, but he's clearly hinted in that direction and then said, now you've betrayed and murdered him. And here as he dies, he looks up and he sees this vision and he sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of the throne of God. What better witness, what more powerful witness could he give to the divine status of Jesus. That There he is. He's in heaven. He's watching this happen. This guy you killed, yep, see him right up there. So it's a, it's a total reversal of their charges against him. And he's facing this persecution, not, not while whining, but full of the Spirit. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, and this prayer should sound familiar, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. Stephen dies just like Jesus. He's full of the Spirit, and he faces death using the same words that Jesus modeled for him, receive my Spirit, and do not hold this sin against them. This might seem like a really sad ending to a story, but if we remember back to Acts chapter 1, the Spirit had spoken through Jesus to say, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so far in the book of Acts, we've been camped out in Jerusalem. That's where everything's happened. 
Stephen's death propels the church into the next phase of their mission. His death, which may seem like a really terrible ending, actually um, propels people out. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And those who were scattered, verse 4 tells us, preached the word wherever they went. So it's, a, it's not our method of choice for missions, right? We're not going to choose or invite persecution so that we go out, but God uses this dark time in the church to be a light through the Spirit. So how about us? If the church needed someone full of the Spirit and of wisdom, would we make the short list? Every Christian is marked by the Spirit. When we become a follower of Jesus, the book of Ephesians tells us, in him you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been stamped with his name. We now belong to him. It's like we have, you've all heard me talk about this, like we have an invisible tattoo on our forehead that says, belonging to Yahweh. The Spirit is that mark. The Spirit is that proof that we belong to him. But you know from reading the Old Testament that belonging to God and behaving like we belong to God are two different things. Far too often those who belong to God and are marked by the Spirit do not exhibit the wisdom of the Spirit. We don't wake up one morning with this kind of wisdom or this kind of spirit filling. It's developed, I would say, over a lifetime of surrender, a lifetime of making ourselves available to him. So you might think of the spiritual life as a little bit like running a marathon. Let's say I decided that I wanted to run a marathon. This is fully hypothetical and will never happen. <laughs> All right? I, I'm a walker, not a runner. But let's say, let's say I decide I'm going to run a marathon. The best way about this is not to wake up tomorrow morning and try to run 26 miles, right? That's not, I, I would die trying because I've, I haven't run since I played tag probably when I was a kid. Like, I avoid running. Um, we don't wake up one morning conditioned and ready for that. We don't have the capacity for it just one morning on a whim. It's actually something we have to train for, and it's by daily choices that we make I'm going to get up and run. I'm going to get up and run some more. I'm going to get up and run some more. And as we condition our bodies, we've, we get to the place where we're able to run an, a whole marathon. I wouldn't know, but that's what they tell me. The spiritual life is like this too. Stephen did not just wake up the morning of his martyrdom and be like, I'm going to be a witness for Jesus today. No, Stephen is a man already who had the reputation of being full of, the faith, full of faith and of the wisdom of the Spirit. It was something he cultivated day after day until other people looked at him and they saw someone who was full of the Spirit. These people are not necessarily flashy. I want to tell you about somebody who comes to my mind when I think about someone full of the Spirit, full of wisdom and faith. And her name is Joanne Barkley. Joanne and her husband were missionaries in Africa for decades, probably 40 years. They went out with Africa Evangelical Fellowship, which was then merged with SIM. And so when my husband and I joined SIM, they were colleagues of ours. And we ended up 
um, in, living in Charlotte, North Carolina, just around the corner from SIM's headquarters, and Ron and Joanne had retired, and they had moved um, right into our neighborhood, so they were just around the corner from us. Neither of them were able to drive. It wasn't too long after we met them that they were unable to drive. Joanne had never learned to drive, because in Africa, um, women drivers are, are less common in the time she lived there. And so she never learned to drive, and she didn't feel like when she came back to the States like she was up, up for the challenge. So her husband, Ron, drove until he had a stroke, and then he wasn't able to drive anymore. And so then she became his full-time caregiver and a home in the suburbs that's not really within walking distance to any grocery stores and fully dependent on other people to bring her to the grocery store, to bring her to church. Ron's health deteriorated over time, and it was, it was after we moved away that he really was struggling, and she was spending her days bathing him, helping him get dressed, helping calm his anxiety. Uh, he, he would get confused and agitated really easily, and she was this cheerful, patient, steady caregiver for him until the day that he died. I remember calling her one day and asking her, so Joanne, how's it going? Are you able to manage? It seems like a heavy load that you're carrying all by yourself. And she said, Carmen, no, I'm not able, but I'm enabled. She exuded the Spirit of God. If I, if I ever felt like I needed a talk with Jesus, like I just needed to connect with Jesus, I could just call Joanne. <laughs> because a conversation with Jesus was just as good, as, a conversation with Joanne is just as good as a conversation with Jesus. She so regularly spent time in the presence of God and viewed all of her life through this lens of faith so that she was ready to, now Carmen, tell me, how's it going? What do you think of Prairie? How are your students? What are you learning? She was just always so eager to hear and to pour into my life as a mentor. And every time, it was just full of blessing. It didn't matter how much she went through. She always had a word of encouragement. Perhaps you've heard the quote from Amy Carmichael, a cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, however suddenly jolted. The Spirit does not prevent problems, but he does empower us to respond wisely under pressure. I filled this cup with water before, before chapel today. If I stumbled and spilled it, water is what comes out of the cup. You don't get coffee on the floor. Um, you're all relieved about that. Um, it's not going to come out juice. It's not going to come out poison. It's going to come out what I put into it. And every one of us is like that. When we're under intense pressure, the stuff that comes out is the stuff that's in there. I would rather not be diagnosed by how I respond under pressure. But I think that's what we see in Stephen's story. Spirit filling is not something we can control or manipulate or guarantee. But it is something we can make space for. We can cultivate a heart condition conducive to the Spirit's work. We can make ourselves available and attentive Stephen was not just smart or savvy. That's not why we get his story in the book of Acts. He was a man who was surrendered to the Spirit and who was marked by that surrender. He was more concerned with the name of Jesus than he was with his own reputation. 
So can others say this of you? When others look at you, do they see a jokester, a slacker, a control freak, someone wound a few notches too tight? Do you crack under pressure? Or when you're facing pressure, is that when others around you notice your faith and your wisdom and your character? When life throws you problems, can others tell that you've been with Jesus? Let me pray for you. Lord, we need your wisdom, and we need your spirit to enable us to be the kind of people who bear your name with honor, even under pressure. Thank you that you're the kind of God who gives good gifts to us, and that you've given us the gift of your spirit and made your spirit available to us. Help us to be men and women who make space for the spirit in our lives, who surrender our own agendas, our own attitudes of self-defense. Help us to be men and women who are more concerned with your reputation than we are with our own. Challenge us as we look at Stephen's life. Challenge us to be the kind of people who can step up in the face of challenges rather than shrink back. And show us how we can begin to take small steps to become that kind of person. How we can be sensitive to the convicting work of your spirit in the little things, the daily things that no one sees, so that when, the, when our moment comes on stage and the rocks are being hurled at us, that we can respond full of faith and full of the spirit. Lord, we're grateful for your grace because every one of us in this room has cracked under pressure. Every one of us has been, uh, has failed in this area, and we're so thankful for your grace, and we ask us to, to make us more like Jesus. Help us to respond more like Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.